from a very early age, I wanted to be an illustrator too and, and, and learn about how Disney has this thing called the plausible, impo- the, po- the plausible possible, which is this thing they give all their Imagineers when they learn how to do in like to, to become an Imagineer, which is you have to ground enough of it in reality that you can do a gag that looks like it could happen, but then it's very fantasy driven. And I think that is a, a good way of how I look at all of the things. And in design thinking, we call it inversion. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Jason Reichel. Jason, thanks for making time. Hey, no problem, man. Thanks for having me. So for somebody who doesn't know about your company, what is it and what's the elevator pitch? Sure. We are called Go Nimbly. We are a revenue operations company. Uh, What revenue operations is, is the unification of your sales, marketing, and customer success operations into one operations team. Uh, I really think it's the last frontier for revenue and those particular classes, if you've ever been, if you've ever met a sales operations person in the past, they've been a support class and our job is to turn them into a revenue team member. And, and that's teaching them new methods about intentionality, prioritizing the business and then just kind of stepping up to the revenue table. And so that's what we do for organizations. We are those people and we also teach those organizations how to hire and train people in that regard. So you guys have been pretty successful at it, you know, with, with doing, you know, essentially handling two and a half billion dollars a year for these large software as a service companies. What do you attribute that level of success to where maybe your competitors haven't gotten to that kind of a level? Yeah, good question. I am a big fan of self-betterment. So Go Nimbly is a flatter organization, not a flat organization, but a flatter organization. And we really try hard to distribute decision-making to the edges of the organization it's always been my background. I, I come from a, this is a pretty untraditional background, but I grew up playing in bands and, and being in punk rock bands, essentially. And a big part component of punk rock is building a community. And so I've always been driven and all of the things I've done, which is comedy and music and all of the bit in business and building a sense of ownership and a sense of, you know, I am part of this thing. And that's led me in my career and in my life down a path of learning, you know, why are some people, why can some people harness and do the impossible while other people can't seem to do that even when they have, say, a Harvard MBA or, you know, they, you know, they have the raw, they have the ingredients, but their pie just doesn't taste as good as someone else's. Right. And so what about that? How do you become a master chef and not just someone following a recipe? And that's been sort of a, a drive for me in business. And, you know, I've taken that through my career where I was the VP of product at some very large unicorn SaaS companies and ran service, large, large services teams for companies like IBM. And ultimately that's led me to create Go Nimbly and really build a team of people who are focused on betterment and focused on, you know, expanding themselves through intentionality, which I know is a lot of buzzwords, but it, it's actually none of its buzzwords. I hate that. The corporate culture has sort of co-opted some things that are not buzzy and just use them all over the place without really understanding what they actually mean when you break them down. Sure. So let's unpack some of that. So I grew up like a hardcore snowboarder, skateboarder kid in the 90s. 
going to lots of crappy punk gigs at like our friend's farm in the barn, right? Probably so for, maybe you've seen me in the past. So where did you grow up? I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and lived in Texas and in my college years. So Austin, which is a great place for live music and toured all around in uh, the country and things like that for a long period of time, got into art and comedy. So I do stand up and write. You know, I really believe in total integration of life and work. I still play music every every week with a band. I still do. I mean, I do comedy all the time. Improv is a big component that we bring to go nimbly and bring to our customers to teach them how to stay present and stay in the moment while moving towards goals. So, you know, all of that stuff kind of has culminated into where where I am now. I, I mean, I can track, yeah. I can trace where I am right now back to sleeping on someone's floor, you know, in 2001 in San Francisco and being like, maybe one day I'll move there. Right. And so that, that, that kind of, that kind of span is what I like to to think about. Sure. So, so where, where in the Pacific Northwest did you grow up? I grew up in the Seattle area, okay. right, right outside of Seattle in this place called Tacoma, which is very blue collar. Uh, my dad was a longshoreman, family businesses working on docks. I think he's still disappointed that I didn't go into that business, all of that, but really grew up in the, to not make this just about punk rock, but really grew up in the, like the riot girl slash K record scene of the nineties that was up there and kind of learned really a lot about running communities and, and how to engage people in a meaningful dialogue. Yeah. I love it. One of some of our main supporters on the team at child rescue or retired Delta force guy lives just, just West of Tacoma out by the water and uh, some Seattle SWAT team guys that are really involved with us. And I've been, it's been fun to go out there and do some work with them. So I'm fascinated by this idea because I, the, I've had so many people on the show over the years who were like skateboarders or, or just like non-traditional, like non-MBA types who just have like the, the creativity and the like, I don't know, the appetite for failing and trying again. Yeah. That I, I feel like has prepared them for entrepreneurship. You know, I, I look at like, you know, I always tell people, oh, I took the super traditional route to finance, you know, getting on it. What was the number one mid-market M&A team in the world was by being an art school dropout. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. I was an illustration major. Yep. Right. But I could talk to people and they really just needed somebody who could talk CEOs into letting them sell their companies. Yes. You know, right. so that was my that was my gig. Right. And yet you look at how many people, and yet there's tons of genius people who followed the rules and they did an MBA and then they worked at Goldman Sachs and they, they stood out from the crowd, right? But I, I am interested in any thoughts you have on how, you know, art and music and that work with people prepared you for entrepreneurship. Yeah. So I'm a big believer in uh, design thinking. That was my background. So from a very early age, I wanted to be an illustrator too and and, and learn about how Disney has this thing called the plausible the the plausible possible which is this thing they give all their imagineers when they learn how to do in like to to become an imagineer which is you have to ground enough of it in reality that you can do a gag that looks like it could happen but then it's very fantasy driven and i think that is a, a good way of how i look at all of the things and in design thinking we call it emergent pattern thinking and so the real way we learn for even if you go the traditional route the real way we learn is through emergent behavior and finding patterns and we think that we should be looking for those patterns if you're if you go a traditional route 
I should be looking for the patterns in my schoolwork and my, my, you know, this, I go to school from nine to six. And that's when I look for the patterns of how to become, you know, a successful entrepreneur. And then I go and I have, I party with my friends and I have my normal life. I go snowboarding or I go skateboarding or I play music or whatever you do. And those become hobbies. In reality, what you should be looking for is the emergent trends from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. And then hopefully you're, you're dreaming about those things too. And you'll notice that you can open up a whole second part of your world to grow and, and develop from. And so that's something that I have done for a long time and where all these things were, I think having an artist mind helps because you don't question where inspiration comes from when you're an artist. You know, if you're walking down the street and you see a billboard and that makes you want to get out your sketch pad and draw something that's tangentially related to it, you do it because you're inspired. We call it, you know, whatever. And then once you become a serious artist, you realize there's ways to harness your creativity so that when you're not inspired, you still do the work. That is very much where some artists fall off the map because they only wait for the inspiration to happen, right? You know, when I was skateboarding, you know, trying a new trick, you failed so much before you actually got it. And then it was this dumbest thing where suddenly you do the trick and you're like, wow, I don't even really know how I did that. I didn't do anything different than I did the thousand times before that. It just happened. And it looks like, you know, it looks kismatic. It looks, it looks like it's like magic, but in reality it's not, it's just all these emergent things like you know, the way that I was trying on the skateboard, the way that I was, the way that my mindset that I came that day, the fact that I ate lunch at 12, all of these different components suddenly was I had enough energy to pull off that trick. And I think it's similar to how I look at the rest of the world now, which is if you look for the emergent trends, there's nothing more intimate than making music with other people. You have to listen. You have to use active listening skills. You have to then go out and put yourself out in front of other people to have them listen to it and when they say it's good or bad, you also have to have the mindset that you're not listening to that, but you are still listening to it in a weird way because they're giving you feedback that's altering you, but also you have to stay true to yourself. So it really is a testament to that. And there's all these like little components that really teach you about, you know, being rejected and accepting and hearing. And I think those are the things that then you can bring into your career that most people just shut the door on. And if I give any advice to anyone and, you know, we have some co-ops from Northeastern and, and the stuff that's coming on this year to go nimbly it's look for learnings in every single thing you do. Don't do anything non-intentionally. And if you find yourself and you're in a situation where something happens, don't just go, oh, that was lucky. I do believe that luck is a big part of our lives, but I think the thing that separates very successful people from less successful people is the ability to harness luck and turn it into something that's, that didn't have anything to do with luck, right? I've had so many opportunities in my life, but if I had just let that one opportunity be lucky, it would have just been one lucky story instead of something that built and built and built and built. And that's kind of one of the major things that I think a lot of people do is they look for that one introduction. And then that was the thing, you know, that, that would have been the silver bullet to where they want to go. And then it's one introduction. And then, and then what happens there, you might work at someplace for 18 years and go, well, I got really lucky. I got that one lucky break. But what if your entire life was one lucky break? What if you just built on top of that constantly? Right. And I think for me, that's come from being in bands. That's come from doing comedy and just realizing, oh, you never know how it's going to go. So an example of a story is I went to a baby shower in LA. I am an amateur stand-up comedian. I am a improver and sketch writer here in San Francisco. And I'm at a baby shower and I'm just having casual conversation with someone. And then the next thing I know, they're asking me to write a pilot for MTV where puppets, it's about rap and it's about the history of music and it's a comedy show about rap and puppets. And they asked me to write an episode of it because I know music and I am funny. 
But really what sold it is that I was just talking to them in a way because I had a career, I had other things going on in my life. I was just talking to them in a way that they could appreciate. It was the business side of my personality. And that's also come out in being in bands is like, we were always on time for gigs. We were always easy to book. We were always like, we just had our together. And that was so different than other artists who were like, the art is what I am. And I was like, I'm so much more than this music, or I'm so much more than, you know, this comedy, I am all of these things. And I'm always using each of them to grow and process myself. And so I think that's kind of one of those stories where, oh, wow, someone would have been some screenwriter would have killed to be in that thing. I was just having a casual conversation and something good happened to me. And then I don't have did that show get made that show did get well, it got they, they made they did produce the episode I wrote. But it never got an MTV. They did three of them. But it was really funny and, and cute. It was made by the people who did Cranky Anchors. It was their next thing after Cranky Anchors. And so that was, uh, that was a learning lesson. But a lot of those things have happened in my life. And, you know, it feels really fantastical. But I, 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 yeah. I've just enjoyed that ride. It's been a way better life than had I shut myself off and said, no, I'm just a business CEO. And, and before I was a CEO, it pissed people off because they were like, are you not dedicated to this job? And I'm like, you have no idea how dedicated I am to this job. You have no idea how much work I'm putting into this because I'm doing this other experience and learning things that I'm applying here that make me a great leader that you admire. But the only thing that you want is like sort of this linear thinking path. And so when you're a nonlinear thinker, you're going to often find yourself in a hard position because people can be jealous of that. They can be jealous of someone who can seem to have it all, right? Or be manifesting, not to use a hippie new agey word, but manifesting intentionality across across the board in everything they're doing and in using that to further their own career or furthering their own leadership style. So yeah. So yeah. So that show got made and it was a really cool experience and I'm I'm grateful for it. And I would do it all over again. Yeah. So and just quickly, what were those what were the big giant SaaS companies you worked for before starting this one? Uh, yeah, so I the biggest the unicorn company that I worked for I worked for a, a, two Salesforce owned companies or they were the primary investors, but I worked uh, I was the VP of product at a company called TradeShift, and TradeShift is now a billion dollar company. They are working in the logistics space, trying to make it safe for companies like Nike to buy shoestrings from some company in Vietnam and get around, you know, are they a terrorist group? Are they not a terrorist group? Is that allowed? How does all that work? And it was a really cool job because I'm really I have always had this idea in me, which is do the job nobody else wants to do and you can be successful. So go nimbly is a similar thing where we are teaching operators who have been a second class citizen who are who are basically support in the past have been admins or support looked at a cost center, something you have to have to operate your business, but not something that can benefit your business and transform that into, oh, wow, they can actually grow. And we've seen this through our research and doing it. They can grow the revenue of each of our prospects by 26% by filling in the gaps that the customer is experiencing in our buying cycle, right? So what's an example of that? Yeah, an example is in the traditional SaaS model, you have, let's talk about a B2B SaaS model. You have a BDR who's calling and trying to make appointments, usually cold. We're talking about enterprise sales here. And then you have a handoff to a sales rep. And then you, and during that process, marketing's hitting them. And at some point, customer success or implementation needs to get involved in order to implement that. What we found is that a customer will, at this point, it's no longer the age of the customer where they're informed. That's an old sort of 2005 sort of mindset. What it is is a customer now comes to software companies with the intent to buy. So let's pretend one of our customers is Zendesk. If someone's coming to Zendesk and engaging with your sales process, there is a 75% chance that they're going to buy your product, right? Right. Because they're not going to engage in a process without 
knowing that this is a real tangible result for them. Even in, even if you're cold calling them, your cold callers are not so great that someone just gets on a call confused about what Zendesk is, especially in the B2B space, right? So they're going to get on a call because they intend to buy. What happens though, is I like to think of it as a bank account. And for every interaction that's bumpy along that process, they're going to either spend less money with you or commit long, like they're going to commit less to you from a contract perspective, or they're going to say, hey, let's just pilot this on my team and not do company-wide because you are eroding their, you know, their political favor. You're asking them to go out and do things on behalf of your organization. B2B SaaS companies are terrible at this because we all think that our products are so beautiful and like we'll sell the world and we forget that what we're, we're selling to is people. And if I'm going to go write a check for you for $350,000 for the year, uh, if I'm buying salesforce.com and it was a terrible, confusing experience, I'm going to instead at, at the last minute say, well, what would be the price be if it was month to month? And that is a big thing that happens. You still get the sale. The sales rep is happy. Oh, I got the sale. But the business isn't, shouldn't be happy because the business didn't maximize off that prospect. And especially when the age of COVID, we need to be maximizing off of each of our prospects because people are buying less, you know? And so what the process is, is an operator will go through there and operationalize those gaps and really deliver a personalized buying experience to your buyers. And a personalized buying experience is in B2C, everyone knows it. You get on your Instagram. Instagram seems to know who you are and is recommending products to you that you want to buy. And those products are usually $20 or $150. How can those companies nail it? But B2B companies who ask you to invest $300,000 and your career still send you emails like, insert name here, right? How does that actually happen? And what's the cost of that? The cost of it is... If you're a great product, I still might buy you, but I'm not going to trust your inner workings of your organization. So I'm going to pull back my pocketbook a little bit. And so that's what operators are supposed to spend. Uh, that's what operators in my world are supposed to be doing. In reality, what a lot of operators are doing is taking pet peeves from you know, your CRO or your VP of uh, sales, and they're going and doing those things like, I don't like the, the layout in Salesforce. Can you go fix that? Well, that has nothing to do with our customer, does it? And who cares if the sales team doesn't like the layout. Well, they need to be more effective. Why? So they're carry, so they can meet their carry capacity. In reality, you're just working for the wrong boss. The boss is the customer and the teams are fractured. It's a thing called silo syndrome. It's been around forever. Phil Eisner in, in the eighties coined it when he worked at Goodyear tires. And it's that we, when we have too many specializations, when we have too many different incentive mechanisms, we will all go to justify our own existence. And that is death to growth of a business. And what's really sad in the SaaS field is you can still grow 100% year over year while you allow these sell silos to build. And so you'll get a false positive. And so my career has been going into these organizations and saying, I know you think it's great to grow 100%, but I could get you to grow 150%. And you wouldn't have to keep hiring so many sales reps because the problem is you're not operationalized. The problem is that you're just throwing people at it. You're not looking at your entire buying journey and, and, and correcting it to give the best experience for your customer. CEOs love this messaging. Head of sales do not usually. CROs love this messaging. Marketers, I think, of it, to just give one last point about this and I'll stop monologuing. But, you know, in the world of marketing, if you think about how marketers were 10 years ago, people would say, well, marketing is just arts and crafts. We don't know what part of that business works, right? Now, people have marketing attribution and all these things, and marketers have huge amounts of power in the buying cycle because they can prove, hey, these channels are working. Give me more money, and I'll give you more, I'll give you more prospects at the door ready to buy. And that has changed how marketing looks like in SaaS companies. Uh, they're very powerful now. I think the same thing is going to happen with operations because I can literally go in, look at all of your opportunity data inside of Salesforce.com or whatever CRM you use. I can use it and put it into our tools, which tell us, 
your trends and tell you, here's an operational gap you have. And I can tell that by doing this. Well, I, I want to dive into this. I know we're about up for time for part one of the interview. And on part two, I, I really want to dig into some of those specifics. Yeah. Maybe to finish off part one, question I like asking guests sometimes is, what advice would you give a younger version of yourself? A younger version I would give to myself is I would give the formula for intentionality, which is gain awareness. So that's the first part. So like look around and be aware of where you are. That's being present. Give it meaning and say, okay, what does this mean to my career, to my life as a person? And then move that into experimentation and make a very small tactical change that you're going to carry out and then wait for more awareness to come and just run that cycle over and over and over again. And you won't feel that sense that you feel in your 20s of what the am I doing? You know, that's a really real feeling that you have in your 20s, because people have been preparing you to be an adult. And then suddenly you realize, if I'm really going to do this for the next 60 years of my life, I have, I don't know anything yet. And if you can learn this and apply it, you'll, you'll realize right away that things just get a little more calm, because everything is an experiment, and you're, you're the scientist. And I think that's a really nice place and a, a, a solid place to, to make decisions from. I love it. Well, everybody, please tune in to part two. Uh, we're going to dig into some of the specifics from what Jason's been telling us.